in the book of 1 Thessalonians, where we have been throughout the month of November, Paul wraps up the book by giving us some of the most significant teaching on the fact that Jesus is coming again. Have you ever waited in eager anticipation of something? So uh, when Emily and I travel, well, I shouldn't say, I should, basically whenever, Emily and I like to eat. We really like to eat. But when we travel, we like to try out new places to eat. And uh, we, we are willing to wait in eager anticipation for the right restaurant, or uh, in the case of the story I have, for the right donuts. So um, <laughs> this year, uh, we had the chance to go to Portland, and there's a well-known donut shop in downtown Portland, and Emily had never been there before, so it was an opportunity to go try something new. So we walked through downtown Portland, first mistake, but that's fine, we made it. <laughs> And we arrived at the donut shop, and there was a line stretching around the building. But that didn't deter us. Why? Because we knew that that donut was going to be worth it. It was going to be worth it, even if we had to wait in line. And we waited and waited, and it was hot, and downtown Portland does not smell great, and it was just not a great experience waiting. But we were willing to wait in anticipation of the donut. And I think when Emily got her donut, she will tell you it was worth the wait. There are things that are worth the wait. Turn into your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul in verses 1 through 12 has made an argument. The argument the Apostle Paul made was living for God is something that you can do. You are personally, through God's grace, able to live in a way that pleases God. You need to grow in the way you please God, but because of Christ's righteousness, because of God's grace, you can live a life that is pleasing to God. It doesn't mean it's easy. And what Paul's going to argue is that it is worth it. Paul is going to pull everything together by emphasizing that the ultimate reason for such effort to live in a way that pleases God is because Jesus is coming again. Jesus coming again is our motivation. It's our hope. It's our joy. Throughout the book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul has alluded to several times, Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming again. Now Paul's going to hammer that out so that we remember at all times that we live in eager anticipation that Jesus is coming again. Read with me 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. It says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, 
we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Divinely appointed words of comfort are worth repeating. Jesus is coming again. And these divinely inspired words of comfort, the words God gave us here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, they are worth repeating. Jesus is coming again. If we truly believe that Jesus is coming again, though, there might be a nagging question in the back of our minds. What about those who don't live long enough to see Jesus' coming again? What about those? What about those who have passed on, who have died? Christians who didn't make it long enough to see Jesus coming again. What happens to them? And if you think about the context of 1 Thessalonians, I suspect this was a really relevant question for the Thessalonian Christians. You see, 1 Thessalonians is probably written 20 to 25 years after Christ's death and resurrection. So 20 to 25 years have elapsed. People have accepted Jesus as their personal savior. They have recognized that Jesus died for their sins, paid the price for their sins, and is coming again. And they've been told, Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming again. And 25 years later, he hasn't come yet. And guess what happens in a span of 25 years? People die. And so there is a nagging question in the back of people's minds. What about those who have died? What is their status? And so the Apostle Paul provides divinely appointed words of comfort. First of all, he tells us in verses 13 and 14 that the grief that comes from the loss of a loved one does not need to be without hope. We aren't without hope. There is an answer to this. There are things that we have the answer to. We have a hope. We have an expectation. Because despite the reality of death, and it is a reality, in fact, many of us know Christians who passed away this last week. Death is a reality. Despite the reality of death, there is a second reality. And that's that Jesus is coming again. And he provides hope. So, here in verses 13 and 14, Paul says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed. We don't want you to be ignorant about those who sleep in death, those who have fallen asleep. This is not some theologically complex thing that we have to like tear into all of this to understand what does it mean to sleep in death. Take it at face value. It simply means you don't need to worry about those who have died. Those who are Christians who have died, don't worry. Why? Because we don't grieve as those without hope. We don't grieve as those who don't know what the future holds. What do we know? That Jesus rose from the dead. And if Jesus defeated death, we are guaranteed. 
that Jesus will bring back those who have died in him. Those who have already died, who have accepted him as their savior, have an expectation, a hope of future resurrection. Why? Because of the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, verses 15 through 17 tell us that there is a future greatest reunion of all time that has already been scheduled. Have any of you ever been to a family reunion? Hopefully. They can be a lot of fun, right? Let's, let's just imagine the fun ones. <laughs> there is a future reunion already scheduled. It's already on the books. It is the greatest reunion imaginable. And the attendees are listed. In verses 15 through 17, the attendees at this reunion are listed. First of all, those Christians who are alive when Jesus comes back, they'll be there. Second of all, Christians who have already died, they'll be there. And third of all, this one's really important. Jesus himself is going to be at this reunion. We're told the events that surround this reunion. We're told that there is a loud command, the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. What this tells us is that it's going to be unmistakable. When this event happens, when this reunion happens, if you have accepted Jesus' death on the cross as payment for your sins, you are not going to miss it. Don't worry. You're not going to have to worry about whether you overslept your flight. You will be there. You will know it. It will be clear. You might ask, well, what about those who have been dead for thousands of years and there's not much left? Or what about those who were lost at sea? Or what about those whose bodies were cremated? Let me give you my simple answer. The God who created the universe, ex nihilo, out of nothing, does not worry about details like that. Those are easy for God. God is scheduled the greatest reunion of all time. In fact, the Bible tells us the order of events. We already have the schedule planned out. The dead in Christ are going to rise first. Then those who remain, who are alive, will be caught up to be with Jesus in the air. We will all be there together for a royal procession to heaven. The greatest reunion of all time. I do want to just talk real briefly uh, about a, a particular word here. Verse 17 tells us, after that, we who are still alive and are left will be cut up together. There is a, a general name for this event. It's called the rapture. And someone might tell you, well, you know, the rapture is not found in the Bible. Yes, it is. Uh, it, it very simply is. The word caught up comes from the Greek word, um, which the Latin word translated, translation of the Greek word is raptuo. This is literally, we could translate this, there will be a rapture. That's what this verse literally says. It's right there. Um, Translators tend to try to make decisions that please everybody. And so they've chosen not to translate that as rapture. Instead, they've translated it as caught up. But it's right there. 
There is an event coming when Christ comes again and he takes the dead in Christ, the living in Christ. We have a grand reunion in the air. And verse 18 tells us that the anticipation of this reunion is, should be a source of great comfort. Have you ever been at a funeral or a service and not known what to say to somebody? Been at a loss for words? Or you weren't at a loss for words, but you should have been? There are divinely appointed words of comfort. The Bible tells us how to comfort those who have lost a loved one in Christ. There is a coming future event when we will be reunited. As we celebrate Christmas, Christ's first coming, don't forget the excitement. It's not just about the fact that Christ died for our sins. Those are important things. I don't want to under, underplay those. But it is also about the fact that he's coming again to reunite us. Here's my action step. Copy down this passage. Put it somewhere where you will be reminded and comforted. Remember, these are the divinely appointed words of comfort. When you are mourning, when you are grieving the loss of someone, put these words somewhere where you will be reminded because this is what God has for us to remember. Jesus is coming again. I want to continue on, though, with verses 1 through 11 in chapter 5. So let me read verses 1 through 11. The Apostle Paul writes, Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. After discussing the rapture, the fact that Jesus is coming again, the Apostle Paul moves into what is one of the most theologically complex areas, I think, uh, or notions of the Bible. And what that is, is the day of the Lord. And what he tells the Thessalonians is that the divinely appointed day of the Lord is worth our patience. But in order to make sense of this divinely appointed day of the Lord that's worth our patience, I think I'm going to need to walk into the theological weeds just a little bit, so bear with me, so that we can talk a little bit about what is this day of the Lord notion. It's a difficult thing to understand. It's a difficult theological construction. 
the Old Testament uses the literal phrase day of the Lord 18 times in the minor prophets mostly, uh, I guess major and minor prophets. But it's used 18 times where the prophets talk about the coming day of the Lord, and it's very specific in that language. In addition to the phrase day of the Lord, the Old Testament also says on that day, those words, on that day, an additional 208 times. So it's a theologically complex term, but it's used a lot. 226 times that it's referenced in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the New Testament writers sometimes will say day of the Lord, and other times they'll actually use the phrase day of Christ. So it, it could be day of the Lord, it could be day of Christ. It's all a reference to the same theological idea and to get you to that idea, I want you to turn to Isaiah 13. And we're going to look at verses 6 through 10, just so you can hear a description of the day of the Lord. So this is Isaiah chapter 13, verses 6 through 10, that details this a little bit. So listen to how Isaiah describes the day of the Lord. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Because of this, all hands will go limp. Every heart will melt with fear. Terror will seize them. Pain and anguish will grip them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at each other, their faces aflame. See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. That's how Isaiah describes the day of the Lord. I told you that there were 226 references to the day of the Lord in the Old Testament. We're not going to go there today. We do have a business meeting we have to get to. But here's what I want to tell you the general idea is. The day of the Lord is a coming time when God directly intervenes for two purposes, salvation and judgment of sin. So salvation for those who have accepted Jesus as their personal savior, judgment for those who have rejected Jesus. It is a future event, but it is in fact not a single future event. If you read all the passages, you realize that, oh, there's actually multiple days of the Lord. The other thing is the phrase day of the Lord is a little misleading. It doesn't have to be one day. It can be an extended period of time. Okay, so the day of the Lord, keep this in as the key idea, is a time when God directly intervenes. In other words, miraculous. It's, it's clear that something unique is happening here. A time when God directly intervenes for the purpose of salvation or judgment. So the day of the Lord, in this passage, back in, sorry, 1 Thessalonians, the day of the Lord is a reference to a period of time that immediately follows the rapture. We generally know this as the Great Tribulation. Okay? So, the day of the Lord is a future period when God directly and definitively intervenes in the world. That's what you need to know. Second, the day of the Lord is coming, but the specific date is not something for us to know. 
The day is coming, but we don't need to know the specifics. Let me give you a, a few details here. First of all, the disciples back in Matthew 24 wanted to know the specifics. They asked Jesus time and time again, when is that day coming? And Jesus' answer, nobody knows but the Father alone. It's not for you to know. Paul here and Jesus refer to this as a thief in the night. Now, we live in Lincoln, Nebraska. Um, there, are, there are things that happen in Lincoln, Nebraska. I'm not going to say nothing ever happens in Lincoln, Nebraska. But I don't think we can comprehend the notion of a thief in the night. We're, we're pretty safe and secure. My dad grew up in, in Manaus, Brazil. Actually, he grew up in the jungle, but in the summers, he, he would go back to Manaus, to the city. And he would tell us stories. Uh, many of you probably have a fence around your yard, maybe like a metal or, you know, you might have an eight-foot privacy fence. Might, right? In Manaus, Brazil, um, they had, it was cinder blocks, concrete cinder blocks, and they would usually go up like 10 feet, nice and high. Uh, then at the top of the fence, or the cinder block wall, basically, around their house, you would take bottles, like, like pop bottles, things like that, you would um, break them and shatter the glass and line the top of the concrete wall with glass. That way, if somebody attempted to jump your wall, they would get glass in their hands and at least deter them a little bit. Why? Because at any given time, you might expect a thief to break in and try to steal everything you have. That was the life that he grew up with that's the life that a lot more people in the world outside of Lincoln, Nebraska actually do live in. A world where a thief could come in at any time and steal what you have. That's the life that the Thessalonians had. You had to be careful because a thief might come at any time. What the Bible tells us is the day of the Lord is like a thief in the night. It could come at any time. The rapture could happen right now or in five minutes or in 5,000 years. The day of the Lord could come at any time time. But we don't need to worry. We don't need to live in this eager anticipation. Oh no, is it coming? Is it coming? No. Because while the rest of the world says peace, peace, we know there's not peace. For the Christian, there's going to be peace. The day of the Lord is not something where we face judgment. Verses 4 through 7 tell us the day of the Lord is not something Christians should worry about. Because we're not looking to be judged on that day. So how do we handle the day of the Lord? Do you remember ordering things from like a catalog or waiting for a package before the days of shipping and tracking numbers? So somebody, so I know that for many of you, like this is completely foreign. If you're, I don't know what age it would be completely foreign to you, but if you're under, certainly under 20, it's definitely foreign to you. But there was a day when you would get a phone call from a family member in another state, and they'd tell you, I'm sending you a package. And you'd say, okay, it might be here next week. It might be here in two weeks. I know it's coming, right? Nowadays, let me tell you how this works. Um, you order your, your newest iPhone, okay? And you get a tracking number within like 24 hours and it tells you the exact day it's going to be delivered. You get up that morning, you take the day off of work because you want to be able to open your iPhone as soon as it comes. And you sit at home, 
and you look on the tracking number and you see that the FedEx truck is three miles away and has 14 stops before it gets to your house. And so you get yourself a cup of coffee and you go out on the port step a half hour later and he hands you your iPhone, right? That's how tracking numbers work now? Okay, maybe that's a little extreme, but maybe not. The day of the Lord is like a thief in the night. We, we know it's coming. It's like old style shipping. We know it's coming. We don't know when. Don't quit your job. Don't take the day off of work. It might not be today. It might not be tomorrow. And that's okay. We know it's coming. And that's what the Apostle Paul wants to communicate. The coming day of the Lord should motivate us to live because we know it's coming. We know that God is coming again, that he's going to rapture us to heaven and then he will take care of the sin problem on the earth. We know that's coming. And we can focus on living a life for God knowing that that's coming, but we don't have to worry about it because we won't be here for the judgment. And let me make that argument for you real quick. We won't be here for the judgment. Look at verse 17 back in chapter 4. After that, we who are still alive, we, Paul says, we will be caught up with God. Paul had an expectation that he, if he was still alive, would be taken to heaven in verse 17. Now look at, oh, which one do I want to use here? I've got to look in my notes. Verse 9. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. God did not appoint us to have to endure the wrath. We will participate in chapter 4, verse 17. We are not appointed to the wrath that God has in store. So what is the conclusion? How should we act in light of this future day of the Lord? Look at verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up. Encourage one another and build each other up. Tell each other that Jesus is coming again and this should excite us. Encourage each other. Encourage each other to grow because Jesus is coming again. Finally, let's look at verses 12 and I'm going to read through verse 24. We, we could go on to 28, but I want to really highlight verses 12 through 24. In chapter 5, it says, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. My third point is that the divinely appointed way of life is worth living. So, consider the order. Take comfort. Jesus is coming again. Be patient. 
God is going to solve the sin problem here on earth. The day of the Lord is coming, a day of salvation and judgment. But live the life that God's given you to live, knowing that these things are coming. Verses 12 through 13 tell us that God's way of life mandates that we honor his servants. That's what is really going on in verses 12 through 13. Paul is saying, honor those who are your leaders, your spiritual leaders. He gives traits. Who are the spiritual leaders? They are individuals who follow three specific things, three specific jobs that are given to the spiritual leaders here. Hardworking. Okay, a spiritual leader who's not willing to work hard is not a spiritual leader. Spiritual leaders need to be hardworking. They need to care in the Lord. They should care about the people that they are leading. And finally, they should admonish. They should tell you the truth of the scripture, regardless of how it hurts or helps. The truth of the scripture is what's central. Three commands are given, though. First of all, we need to acknowledge those who are spiritual leaders. We must respect and recognize them. When somebody is leading spiritually, when they begin to take that role of spiritual leadership, it is our job as a church to acknowledge that they have begun to serve in that way and to recognize them as being a spiritual leader. Okay, So this is a, an important aspect, I think, of... Our, our ordination to either deacon or pastor. As a church, when we recognize that somebody has begun doing that work, we need to recognize that person. We need to know, oh, this is a spiritual leader, and we need to recognize them for that work. The second thing that we have to do is we have to hold our spiritual leaders in high regard, in love. We must care for our spiritual leaders. And then my favorite part about this, look at verse 13. Hold them in highest regard and love because of their work. Second half, live in peace with each other. If you want to know how you can help your pastor, the answer is actually really, really simple. Get along with each other. Like that is one of the greatest helps you can do to your spiritual leaders is get along with each other. I am thankful as a church we do a good job of this. And I believe the Thessalonians did too. The Apostle Paul doesn't go into a lot of detail here. He just says, keep doing it. Live in peace. It's one of the greatest ways that you can show love and respect for your spiritual leaders. Verses 14 through 15 tells us that it's not just that we care for our spiritual leaders, but that God's way of life mandates mutual edification with other brothers and sisters in Christ. The way to live in expectation of the future rapture and coming day of the Lord is to mutually edify one another. How do we do that? Warn those who are idle, those who are not working, let them know, hey, you're not, you're not doing your job here. You're not part of this. You need to work. Warn those who are disruptive, those who are causing problems. Let them know, hey, you're causing problems here. You got to stop. You got to knock it off. Encourage those who are disheartened. There are times when life is brutal. It's true. There are times when life is simply brutal, and we need to encourage those 
who are disheartened. We need to help the weak. We need to be patient. Avoid taking vengeance. And strive to do what is good. Strive for godliness. In verses 16 through 18, we're told that God's way of life mandates continual exercise of three actions. There are three things that we are to be continually doing. The first is rejoice always. We should be not necessarily always happy, but always joyful. You can be sad and still be joyful. You have seen people do this. Rejoice always. Pray continually. So I did a little bit of research on that word continually because I enjoy doing things. It's an an adverb that was used actually to describe somebody who had a hacking cough. So you all have met people, or you know, it's, it's that time of year where people have hacking coughs, right? Where it's just that tickle and it's just constant. And it's not that they are constantly coughing, but they are always ready to start a coughing fit. That's supposed to be our prayer life. It doesn't mean that necessarily every waking moment you're in prayer, but it means that every waking moment you might be in prayer. Always praying, pray continually, always ready to pray. And then finally, give thanks in all circumstances. So those are the three actions we're supposed to do. Rejoice, always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. There are three actions we need to avoid in order to live life in God's divinely appointed way. The first is don't quench the spirit. When the Holy Spirit prods you, because he will, don't say no thank you. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. Don't treat prophecies with contempt. Now, we are not in a day and age when there are currently active prophecies. That was a gift that was given to the early church before the completion of the Bible. But we are in a day and age where we have access to the full prophetic word of God. Don't treat it with contempt. Rather, instead... Test it. Check it. When somebody tells you, here's what the Bible says, look yourself. See if that's what the Bible really says. Check the Bible against itself. We're told to do this. Finally, we're told to hold on to what is good by rejecting every kind of evil. If it doesn't look right, reject it. Get rid of it. If it doesn't (laughs) that was not the trumpet (laughs) interesting all right let me move on to verses 23 and 24 and tell you that God's way of life mandates that we depend on God for real living. If you've just read through this list or looked at this list that's in your bulletin of ways to live and you think that's really hard to do, the answer is you're right. What we see in verse 24 is that the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. You can't do it on your own. Only through God. So let me give you an action step. Pick one of the five mandates that I gave you earlier. 
pray that God will grow you in this area. Because it's only by God's work that we can grow in anticipation of the day of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would grow us. Grow us to live in anticipation of your coming again. Grow us to be willing to submit to you. Grow us so that what excites us most is knowing that you're coming again and we will be with you. And I pray that that would motivate us, that that would comfort us, that that would lead us to be faithful to you. Father, I pray that as a church and as individuals, we would grow to live life in anticipation of that day when we are united with you forever. We celebrated the Lord's Supper today in remembrance of you and in anticipation of that day when you come to take us with you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.